Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, fantastic episode. This is with hedge fund manager Eric Peters. Really enjoyed this one. Got a ton of insights, uh, even more than I thought actually going in. I knew this would be a great conversation. It turned out even better than I thought. What were some of your takes? Uh, Eric is just a really pragmatic thinker, which is rare in this space, especially somebody who's in the hedge fund world that is almost as bullish on crypto and, and DeFi as we are. Picking Eric's brain really showed me that there are pragmatic thinkers out there who think in pretty real terms about how this crypto revolution is going to unfold. Eric and us were totally aligned on us uh, thinking that this is a crypto renaissance, and he did that without listening to our crypto renaissance podcast. And so we pow out on that for a while and overall had a deliberate discussion about how people that are not going to want to see change in the world, how they're going to have to deal with this whole crypto thing. And we talked about that from the perspective of governments and taxation, of federal reserves and monetary policy, of you know the wealthy boomers who have everything to lose versus the younger generations who have nothing to lose yet everything to gain and how that sort of friction between these very polarized parts of the world, how they're going to deal with this whole crypto revolution. So overall, a very pragmatic and interesting discussion with Eric Peters here. Yeah, it's super cool. It's very cool to see Eric come to many of the same conclusions separately that we've come to. It's like about money, you know, the history of money, about even this idea of crypto being a renaissance, about the core value proposition being decentralization, about how the US adoption might work. So he came to many of the same conclusions that I think we've come to on Bankless, only from a separate angle. The other piece of this is Eric's firm in 2020 was like the first, the largest institutional allocator to crypto, okay? And then he talks about in the first part of the conversation about how difficult it was to buy the amount of crypto that they were buying. It was like $500 million or something like that, 500, 600 million. So uh, he talks about that and I just can't get over how big this is for crypto, right? Like this is really the institutions are coming and they're not just coming for number go up. Like I feel like Eric and his team really understand this asset class and why they're buying the space. It was also funny because I made an embarrassing mistake uh, at the very early phases of this by like, uh, anyway, you'll have to listen to hear what that mistake is. But it's another example of like, the crypto world doesn't have a lot of ties into the financial institutional investing world, and they don't have a lot of ties to crypto. So I think Bankless listeners who've heard us talk to all sorts of different crypto native companies and funds will get a lot of value from this specific conversation because Eric comes at it from a traditional hedge fund manager. How is a large allocator of capital that's done very well in the traditional world, how do they think about crypto and what realizations are they coming to about this asset class? So stay tuned for that. We talk about quantum change. We talk about young versus old and the generational stresses. That might be a macro theme here. We talk about the story of the US versus China, how they are playing the crypto thing, how this is going to turn out from a regulator's perspective. We asked Eric if he was worried about regulation in the U.S. You'll have to tune in to hear his answer to that. And then finally, we end with the case for digital assets. This is just a fantastic conversation. We think you guys are really going to enjoy. Before we get to the conversation, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Matcha, everyone's favorite DEX aggregator, has just launched an open beta for gasless trading. So if you're trading more than $5,000 in common ETH and wrapped Bitcoin pairs, 
then your gas fees on Matcha are free. And that's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible price without any trading fees or unnecessary slippage. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your orders across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that, that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single and easy to use platform and has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and getting a bad price. Matcha also allows you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through through automatically while you're away. So when you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless, connect your wallet, and start getting some of the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Alchemix is one of the coolest new DeFi apps on the scene. It introduces self-paying loans, allowing you to spend and save at the same time. Deposit the DAI stablecoin into the Alchemix vault in order to get an advance on the interest it generates. Borrow up to 50% of the total amount of your deposited DAI in the form of AL-USD stablecoin. Here's the craziest part. The loan pays itself back and you cannot be liquidated. Unlock your assets potential in the ultimate DeFi savings account. And brand new to Alchemix is the ETH vault where you can deposit ETH into the application, borrow AL-ETH against your deposits while having your advance gradually paid back over time. V2 is rapidly approaching, which will allow for even more collateral types, plus a variety of yield strategies to choose from. Harness the power of Alchemix at alchemix.fi. That's A-L-C-H-E-M-I-X dot F-I. Follow Alchemix on Twitter at alchemixfi and join the Discord to keep up to date with Alchemix V2 and to get involved in governance. Bankless Nation, we are super excited about our next guest, Eric Peters. Eric is the founder. He's also the chief investment officer of One River Digital Asset Management. This is a traditional hedge fund that gets crypto, really understands crypto. They've been a massive buyer, a voracious buyer of both Bitcoin and I believe Ether too. Investing in change, political, economic, technological change, quantum change, as Eric calls it. We're going to get into all of that today. This is our opportunity to pick the brain of a hedge fund manager that's been crypto red pulled, I think. Eric, how are you doing today? It's great to have you on Bankless. It's great to be here. Uh, I, yeah, I have never been accused of being red pill, but that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is not usually the type of podcast I'm on. So, uh, so this is awesome. Uh, well, I, I you know appreciate what? you having me. This is going to be fun because we don't often talk to you. What we would call, you know, Eric is, is you know, may, I don't know how you think of yourself, but it's a kind of a traditional hedge fund manager, right? So, yeah. like, we talk to a lot of crypto hedge fund managers. We talk to a lot of uh, VC companies, obviously people in institutional space. But I think you have a really unique vantage point in that you've got kind of a bridge in the traditional hedge fund world and also in this crypto world. So we want to learn as much as we can from you. But like, I guess my first question is, so you guys are based in Greenwich, Connecticut, right? And that's been called the hedge fund capital of the world. There's a lot of big hedge funds out of Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, what does everyone think about crypto in Greenwich, Connecticut? Like, do they all think we're crazy? Is, you know, is there a recognition that, you know, some of this is, is actually happening? Crypto is a real thing or do they just think we're flat crazy? <laughs> um well number one i love that you call it greenwich just because it just that, that it, it's greenwich so it just shows the okay. total <laughs> like the total disconnect between oh my god between that's the i mean but that's no but no it's good because we're not gonna shows, edit that out either no that, leave let's it just, right leave, leave it. it i mean that 
like this is all about you know filling gaps, right? So your world and my world are colliding, and uh, and they're colliding in Greenwich, Connecticut. But just, which is, <laughs> <laughs> um, so sorry uh, to every all the Greenwich listeners out there in Bankless. Uh, yeah, it just shows my ignorance. Yeah, I guess. They're I all, they're all, yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, they're all just a bunch of you know Wall Street guys that are into <laughs> the city anyway. Um, no, uh, it's excellent. So. Look, I, there there are uh, uh, there are a growing number of people. I think you you know you see him. Paul Jones is on CNBC today. I don't watch CNBC, but everyone sends me his quotes all the time. So uh, you know he's he's been a, a big advocate of this space, and uh, you know and he's he's based here. So um, increasingly, I think I look. I think I think people who are who have built their careers around identifying emerging trends and good investment opportunities are on this thing. And institutions are puzzled as to what, what to do, but increasingly are being drawn into it. And so place like, you know, like where we are, and, and quite frankly, our firm is kind of at the center of, of, of that transformation. And I think it is a transformation. I think it's incredibly exciting. It's the most, definitely the most interesting macro opportunity, macro investment thesis I've seen in my career. And uh, and so a lot of it, you know, a lot of it will happen here, right? Uh, I mean, a, a lot of the really exciting things on the technology side are not happening here. But the connection to the legacy financial system, let's call it Wall Street, um, with new technologies is, is going to first happen in the pools of capital that are directed by a limited number of people as opposed to some kind of big investment committee. And those you know, those faster moving limited group of people investment teams are, you know, are sitting here in, in places like Greenwich, not certainly not just Greenwich, but that, that that's kind of how the capital moves. Do you guys feel like you guys, you're leading the, the way in Greenwich, like with Run, One River Capital? Is there anyone else that's doing what you, you mentioned, Paul Tudor Jones, right? I know he's got some exposure in the space, but are you one of the first? Well, uh, I think I think that we are we are the first traditional alternatives manager, which is otherwise called hedge fund. But we're the the first firm that's that's built a business around that. We're over eight years old, so I built it. I started this firm in 2013. But we're the first uh, alternatives firm that uh, that is recognized the opportunity that digital assets need a dedicated fiduciary. So there are a lot of there are a whole bunch of terrific, broader financial services firms in uh, in digital assets, and and a lot of those names are, you know, are pretty well known. Um, but when we entered the space, so we we made our first big allocation uh, last November, and uh, right after the election, and as we did, we we worked with one of our big clients to try to identify how to best access the space. And what became clear is that yeah, you could go out and buy. You could go directly and, and buy these assets, but if you're a, a large investment firm that needs to work with a fiduciary, there really weren't any dedicated fiduciaries. So there are firms that look like, let's say, diversified investment banks for for digital assets or crypto, and they tend to have a, a, a whole range of different services that they provide. They may be doing prop trading, they may be doing custody, they may be doing merchant banking, they may be market making, they may have some asset management products. But there's there's no one that is just just coming out and saying, look, we're focused purely on connecting our clients to the 
opportunity, the investment opportunities we see in this space. We have no conflicts of interest. We're working purely on behalf of our clients. And so that, that, was, the op, that was the business opportunity that we saw. And so when, I, when we made the decision to kind of enter this space, we felt all of our clients should be allocated to these assets. Um, and I'm sure we'll cover that over the, the course of this podcast, but the reasons why. But, but there just was no one that they could really reasonably work with in order to get that exposure. And so we decided to start building out those products. That, that's how we entered this space. Well, that's super cool. Good timing to you, right? November yeah. 2020. And I believe that was at the time one of the maybe the largest ever institutional asset allocation to to crypto at the time yeah um i see what did you guys buy at that time i don't know if you can go into all the details but I yeah assume- no no i mean a lot of this is public we, we bought over 600 million dollars of bitcoin and eth uh at, wow. just right after the election and and yeah and and it was uh, it was a five day it wasn't 24 7 because i i don't stay up that long but uh but it, pretty much uh yeah it, it was a, that was a lot of fun is it hard to buy that much like I've never tried personally. <laughs> I don't know. David probably has, but like, how um, difficult is it to buy six hundred million dollars of Bitcoin and ETH? It was. Uh, it it was. Well, number one, I didn't know how hard it would be either. <laughs> uh, we needed. You know, we we really needed to be extremely discreet. Um, we we work with multiple counterparties right now, but at the time, we worked directly with uh, with the folks at Coinbase on their institutional desk. Okay, and. Uh, and they were terrific. And uh, uh, quite frankly, we, we kept all of it quiet until we were pushed to disclose it about a month later. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was it really it was such an interesting period, uh, you know, kind of it was such an interesting execution. If you just look at the whole thing in totality and said, look, we have to get this position on. We decided that it was important to get it on fast. Um, because if there was any news that leaked out, we thought the market would fly. And quite, fr- you know, when when news did break in December that we had made that allocation, that was the day that Bitcoin broke through the old highs. And and so that didn't really surprise in the sense that there have been a, a whole bunch of years where people have been talking about, oh, institutions are going to come, institutions are going to come. Yes. And we were the first institution that came, right? So we kind of knew that if word trickled out, the thing would run away on us. And I didn't want to be having to buy that much in a market that was running away. So. We, yeah, there are all kinds of you know games that we played with the market, which was really fun to do. I think it actually was, ironically, it was uh, it was probably an advantage to not not be someone who has grown up trading these assets at size, because I think a lot of people are super dependent on um, algorithmic trading and lean on their algos. We used a lot of different algos that that Coinbase had, actually. Um, but we used them in kind of unique ways, and um, and that that helped us kind of mess around with the market so that they that I think they were a little confused as to what was going on, and and that worked to our advantage. So we got it on. We actually got the whole position on without moving the market. Um, in fact, we they we ran an analysis afterwards. We got in below you know kind of below average prices during that period, which. Um, yeah, you know. that's amazing. Like, doesn't matter. Like, these these assets move so much. You know, a few percent here or there doesn't really matter. I don't think. But uh, but it, it, you know, whatever. It's gra- it was gratifying that we got it on quietly, discreetly, and we learned a lot through that process. Well, and congrats on the timing. It's really good timing. Of course, we've seen big moves in both of those assets since. Now here we are, as the time of recording, we're uh, just at over all time highs for Bitcoin and approaching yeah. all time highs once again for ETH. So the timing couldn't have been better. I'm curious about the allocation at that time. I don't know if that's public too, but it's like how much uh, ETH versus Bitcoin. What was sort of the the uh, the split there? 
Yeah, we don't really go into that, but it it was it was uh, it was weighted more heavily toward toward Bitcoin. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. And now we've seen, obviously, uh, you know, quite the appreciation of ETH since then. But I yeah. also wanted to ask, like, because you have a few other notable things, I think, at One River Capital. We're going to spend a lot of time on kind of the thesis and your general thesis for this space, why you're doing things in digital assets. But before we do, some other interesting tidbits, I think, is um, you've got a guy by the name of Alan Howard backing you as well. I uh, understand that's a very big name in the institutional investor space. We obviously also you pronounced it right too, Ryan. That's yes, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the W is not silent in this one. <laughs> that's yeah, perfect. Awesome. Uh, and also uh, Jay Clayton, whom, of course, uh, we recognize in the crypto world, former SEC commissioner, um, someone else is a former CIA legal counsel. So mm -hmm. it's like a lot of the um, established institutions, right, of the world are actually coming into this fund, which I think you know, says something. A former chair of the SEC, somebody who's former been like deep in government, the CIA side, legendary fund manager in the past. What do you think they see in this space? Do they just fundamentally believe your thesis for this space? Is that why they're jumping aboard here? Um, that's a great question. And it hasn't been phrased that way to me. Just, you know, uh, the question is kind of whether there's a common thread. I would say that they're all interested for overlapping reasons, but they probably uh, are weighted differently. So so Alan, uh, Alan and I have known each other for the last decade. He actually invested he took a 25% stake in One River Asset Management before we entered digital assets, but he's since taken a bigger position in our uh, the digital um, subsidiary that we have. Um, and Alan is one of the greatest investors, uh, hedge fund investors of of all time. Uh, he, is, you know, he he has he's known for having a kind of a unique ability to identify opportunities and really size up and manage risk extremely well. And those are very difficult things to kind of have in one person, I think. And you, and you, you know, you rarely, rarely see that. And so he, you know, he's done a tremendous job of jumping on all sorts of trends over the years uh, and capitalizing on them. He was the earliest traditional hedge fund person in digital. Uh, he tends to remain pretty quiet about it, but he was the first one. And so he has, he, he has interesting investments throughout the ecosystem um, and has spent a lot of time on that. And so I think he and I have wanted to be in business for a long time, which is why I took a position in One River, the, you know, the, the parent company initially, and then was even more excited after we entered the space. So I, after we, we entered the space, he and I spoke about it. I didn't tell him what we were doing ahead of time, of course. Um, but, uh, but so I think he, you know, he sees the market opportunity and the business opportunity. Um, I, you know, Jay, Jay's someone I hadn't known Jay until I, I and I, I look, I, I generally don't want to spend much time with regulators. They've, you know, they, they, they've, uh, I, you know I will, I will Except say. Except Hester Purse, we love her, right? Yeah. Right, well, <laughs> well, like just to be clear, you know, we've we've had a couple routine examinations, and and you know we're uh, we've come out squeaky clean, and but that that's kind of the extent to which I, I ever really wanted to spend time with regulators. Um, but I recognize after we enter this space that if we are going to, uh, if we are going to really. Uh, be the best firm we can be for our clients and have a positive impact on the industry. And I think there's a national interest element to this as well. I felt that we were you know, really underarmed from a regulatory perspective, just because having spent my whole 
career, not really wanting to spend time with them, entering a space that where that's such a big driver, I felt like we really needed to have the right, uh, and certainly advisors. And so I, I actually just picked up the Wall Street Journal. I saw it in an article that he'd left the SEC the day before, and I just cold called him and said, I'd love wow. to chat. And um, What did and he so, say? Uh, <laughs> um, he said, let's get together, you know, let's, let's get together. Uh, I, I, you know, I think he, he uh, and then, and then we, you know, we had a number of, of, uh, of lunches, uh, over the, the next few months. And, and, uh, you know, before he agreed to do this, I think he just wanted to get, we, whatever, we both wanted to get to know one another. And what was evident right out of the gate is that, uh, he and I, the thing that we share more than anything is the belief that in order to, uh, in order to continue to have the leading financial services sector in the world, the U.S. has to get the regulatory foundation for this transition from legacy finance to digital finance has to get that right. That's right. And so, so you know, there, there, look, there are a couple approaches to this. I think some of the purists, and, and I, I have a lot of respect for people that were in this space really early. I've paid attention to it my whole career or my, you know, throughout the, the life of, you know, Bitcoin onward. But I, I think that there's a there's an element of people who think that this is the system that is there to be able to build something brand new after the old system crashes and burns. And at one level, they're right. It could. But I don't think the old system is going to crash and burn. I think what's and certainly that's just not the approach we're taking. This is I think what we're building now and what you guys are, you know, what you guys are building and what your whole world is is seeing is an opportunity to rebuild a better financial system. But I, I think it's going to be built upon and will displace the legacy players and systems in ways that contribute to healthier society, much more efficient financial system, et cetera. And that I believe that that has to happen by working with regulators, which is not to say never pressing regulators. It's just to say to to kind of coordinate and cooperate. So that's kind of how that all that all went down. And and, and then and so that's Jay and uh, and then Courtney Elwood. Uh, she, so she was the general counsel for the CIA. And uh, I think her, you know, her position, she's not a um, an investor like Alan Howard, and she wasn't a regulator uh, like Jay, she looks at this from the national security um, perspective. And as do I, by the way, as a macro guy, one of the most interesting frictions is the one between the US and China right now. And we'll probably talk about central bank digital currency, but you know there there is a concerted effort to try to unseat the US dollar as the global reserve currency. And I think that that would not be in the, the US's best interest, uh, nor our allies. And there are all, you know, there are all sorts of other um, kind of adjacent tensions between those countries. But I think from Courtney's perspective, uh, I, I always hate putting words in people's mouths, but I think she shares the view that getting all of this right is in the U.S. national uh, interest, and uh, and and so so we all share. You know, I mean, she recognizes that that's probably also a, a good investment opportunity for people involved because that's obvious, but that's not a driver for her. Eric, I think we need to unpack what it means to get all of this right. And in some of your writing that both Ryan and I really truly enjoyed, you called um, this decade one of the most uncertain decades of our lifetimes. And so mm -hmm. you are betting that we are going into this major 
transition, not just for, you know, uh, investing, but just for how the world works. Uh, this isn't some like new social media platform. This isn't some disruptive fintech company. This is, uh, this is what you are calling a quantum change, uh, which I think maybe, uh, if I if it were my words, we would be calling this a paradigm shift. This is a new paradigm. And so can you, um, just uh, unpack and elaborate on what you mean by a quantum change and why you think it, this change that is happening is uh, of the magnitude that, that you think it is? Sure. Um, I'll, well, let's go with the, the kind of abbreviated version because we could spend sure. you know, time where your listeners would, would certainly fall asleep. Uh, I don't know. We're pretty into quantum will, change, but, but yes, we'll, we'll, go there, we'll go there for you. Really? <laughs> all, right. Well, all right. Well, look, we'll try, we'll try the short version if you want to dig in any deeper. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's take digital crypto. Let's take all of that. Let's take blockchain mm-hmm. just out of the picture entirely sure. for a moment. So, so I started my career in 89, and we have, uh, from, a po- from a global policy uh, standpoint, we have been pursuing a um, a consistent policy through that entire period of time. And that policy has been more or less driven by central bankers. And and so we, we came, you know, when I started my career, inflation was pretty high. This was in 1970s high, but it's still by today's standards. Well, sorry, by today's standards, we're back to those levels. But <laughs> but I, like roll the clock back a year. Um, by those standards and by the standards of the last couple of decades, inflation was high, bond yields were high, et cetera. And, and starting with Greenspan, uh, policy was really introduced to it at, at kind of every economic hiccup. Um, the, the Federal Reserve would lower interest rates in a material way, kind of never ratchet them back up to the, the starting levels as the cycle progressed. And so, and and kind of inflation came down, interest rates came down. Um, the big, the really big macro trends were increased globalization and deepening kind of technology, technology deepening throughout our whole society. And by the way, you couldn't even you couldn't even have globalization at scale without that technology. So all these things played played into one another um, and amplified the impacts. And what that led to was it led to this this period of kind of um, large income inequality, as I said, lower inflation, lower interest rates, very high overall debt levels and leverage, right? Because you could just hold more debt if interest rates were low. Inflation was very stable. And it was it was kind of this, th- these big macro forces were pressing us to a point where that monetary policy, which was really monolithic, uh, had run out of, you know, it, it was no longer as effective as it had been from a much higher starting point of higher interest rates. Is this, and Eric, so, like the morphine drip kind of effect where like patient gets a shot of morphine and then another one and then another one, but it, but it get gradually is less and less effective until basically, you know, patient no longer feels the effect of morphine? Yeah, it's like that. I mean, it's, it's a little bit more mathematical, but it, I mean, it's not the wrong analogy. And the only thing that I would say with that type of analogy is, I think that there are a whole group of people that look at that kind of policy and just say it was just morally bankrupt or you know it was terrible. And when you, when you start talking about morphine, you're, you're I don't know, it has certain connotations. I think that what we witnessed was we saw a real leveraging of the of the U.S. financial system, and it was a policy that wasn't 
It wasn't a dumb policy, it just, but it had a natural endpoint. But by the way, if you look historically through economic and market cycles going back hundreds and hundreds of years, there are cycles, right? So, and cycles play out because these dynamics happen because it, you know, naturally societies want to take on more debt because what does debt do? It kind of pulls demand from the future to the present. It all feels good. Like there are a lot of things that conspire to push society, you know, into these cycles. And it, it wasn't all the Fed's fault. It's like a lot of things work together, but the Fed was the, the dominant driver of these policies. And because the, the dollar is the global reserve currency, Every other central bank in the world, more or less, certainly of the developed countries, more or less had to follow the Fed's policy. Because otherwise, if they diverged from it, their currency would get really strong and their exporters would go out of business and they would scream at the politicians and the politicians would pressure the central bank. And so what you ended up happening after 30 years of this, this policy, you ended up with central banks whose toolkit no longer really worked and you had the whole globe on the same system. Okay. All these guys went to the same schools. They all read the same books. They all, you know, went and begged the Nobel group for their, you know, their prize in economics. They're all like, they all thought this is being unfair, but you know, they, they all more or less had the same paradigm and or, or the same kind of um, mental model in terms of how to think about monetary policy. Right. And so all of that drew us into this um, or drew us into this point where we had the longest economic cycle in the US and the longest bull market up until the pandemic hit. And for the preceding two years, every central banker in the world was crying out for politicians to start spending money because they said, listen, our tools, they're never going to say they, they don't work because that would spark a panic. They kept saying, our tools don't work as well as we would like them to. You have to start spending money. But politicians couldn't really spend money because everyone was kind of stuck in this quasi-austerity mindset. All right. Pandemic hit. And that was the most remarkable catalyst imaginable to just get politicians to say, throw out all those old rules, everything that we've been preaching, because we now have this global pandemic and we need to save the world. And we need to do that with huge fiscal spending. Not I, I don't know what I would have done if I were in that spot, but I probably wouldn't have been hiking rates and you know cutting budgets. So it's the I think the the actions were rational. Right. But what that did is that that shifted us from a world of this monolithic central bank policy. So I, I would call that policy homogeneity. So the whole world was driven by a group of people making decisions that had the same mental model, more or less. And it shifted us in this world where the, the central bankers don't control what governments spend. Politicians decide that. And so if you look at it, if you if we grabbed a group of 50 um, politicians from across the world and 50 central bankers, other than their accents, the central bankers would be almost indistinguishable. Probably the same age, they went to the same schools or you know the equivalent in their countries, et cetera. You took the 50 politicians or 100, be wildly different, okay? Even in the US, like Donald Trump's fiscal policy is different from Joe Biden's, okay? If it, hadn't been, if it had been Bernie Sanders instead of Joe Biden, it would also be different. The point is that that policy becomes very, very heterogeneous when you shift away from a group of central bankers that control everything to a group of politicians across the world interacting with their own political systems, interacting with their central banks. So that, that change alone would be the biggest, uh, we'll, we'll use yours, David, 
paradigm shift instead of quant. That would be the biggest paradigm shift that we have seen since, certainly since the late 70s into, into Volcker in the, in the 1980s. Okay. Okay. Can you break down why? So, so I get, so there's no contrarians among central bankers. Mm -hmm. They're all doing the exact same Mm -hmm. thing, right? But politicians, they have all of these contrarian ideas, but why is this move from sort of monetary policy, money printing, let's Mm -hmm. call it to fiscal policy, money printing? Why is this such a quantum change and such a departure from what we've seen uh, over the past 30 years? Isn't it both still kind of, you know, money printing, uh, dollar supply go up? It's a really good question, and, and, and here is the simple answer to that is that maybe a multi-part answer. The simple answer is that the, the paradigm that we were in was one where there was a lot of money printing, but the veloc- there was a lot of money printing, there was a lot of debt accumulation, but the velocity of that money that was being created as more money was being created, the velocity was declining. And so what happened was you ended up with a lot of liquidity in the system that wasn't actually moving through the system very fast. Where it was, fi- where it was finding a home was in asset prices. And so, so that policy wasn't really lifting real economic growth. So you saw it in spite of all that QE, you saw inflation become very low and stable. Economic growth became became very modest and relatively stable. And asset prices were the things, financial asset prices were the things that were going up. What happens when you, you say, actually, we're going to start spending money is that, that shifts the whole equation. Because you go, <laughs> in, instead of just a bunch of you know, a, a bunch of 65-year-old central bankers saying, we're just going to print more money and buy more bonds. And then a bunch of 65-year-old baby boomers go, well, you just paid more for my bonds than I thought they were worth. And now that I don't own those bonds anymore, I'm going to go buy some stocks. That, all that's happening with a bunch of 65-year-old people, right? All of a sudden you go, no, here's what we're going to do now. We're going we're gonna to keep doing all that bond buying and all that money printing, but we're going to have the, the largest economy in the world, the U.S. economy, borrow 15% of GDP for two years running, and we're going to start spending that money. We're going to give it to people. We're, we're not just giving it to the 65-year-old people who have an equity portfolio that represent the top 1% of wealth in the country. We're giving it to everyone, okay? And so that, that we haven't even begun to see the consequences of that. Well, sorry, we've just only now started to see the consequences of how dramatic a shift that is. That's something that was just inconceivable um, even a, a couple of years ago. I mean, just completely inconceivable that we would do something like that. By the way, we had, we had expected a move toward this fiscal monetary coordination. If you'd asked me, and we were positioned for it, which was great for our investors, if you'd asked me what are the probability pre-pandemic of seeing two years of 15% budget deficits out of the US fully funded by the Fed, I would I would have said in the in the absence of a of a world war a one percent probability. Um, wow, just and that's what's happening. Yeah, and that's what's this happening. What's, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So um, let's talk about this this I guess paradigm shift because like I, I like the point that you made earlier. I mean, we can get out of the habit. Sometimes crypto and other people have the habit of kind of moralizing these things, right? Maybe the morphine drip has some moralizing connotation, like, yeah, don't keep giving the patient morphine, that sort of thing. But I think your broader point as an investor is just like, hey, this is just cycles. This is the flywheel. If you were a 
individual in that system, what decisions would you have made? Probably the same decisions. And now we have this massive wealth inequality. And, you know, in the U.S., people are like, hey, you know, the 1% got their cut of this thing through asset price increase over the past 10 years. Where's my cut? Right? Where's universal basic income, for instance? Where's the distribution? Where, how can we get uh, minimum wage to increase? And so a portion of that is now going to, to labor. So, and, and you understand why the cycle plays this way, right? It's like if you're individual in the, in the wheel, you probably make some of these same decisions. But let's talk as investors. So, what are the implications of this? Is this basically is what you're saying? Maybe we don't know all the implications, but is one of the things that you're saying that we're about to see massive. CPI, consumer price index type inflation over the next 10 years? Or what are the sorts of shifts that we should expect given this monetary to fiscal policy regime change? So the first thing I would say is that if it were only that regime change or that paradigm shift that that were affecting us, it would, it would be the biggest one that we've seen. Uh, certainly in my career, um, spending over 30 years, but it's not because everything I just said is happening with the backdrop of blockchain technology on the cusp of rewiring the global financial system. And spinning out of that project are a variety of assets, cryptocurrencies that, you know, or various tokens that I think represent fundamental change in, in probably how the whole world operates that will take decades to manifest. But in the here and now, it's affecting financial markets and investment opportunities, et cetera. So, so the first thing I would say is that, that you, you have these, these enormous potentials for change that are kind of colliding in a super interesting way. Um, and and so the outcome of that is it's highly uncertain which, because, because it's not going to happen in a totally free market. It's not, it, you know, you're seeing like, just look at what China's done, right? I mean, you're going to have, you, you basically have this, this paradigm shift from monetary fiscal policy that's going to change the way that the economy operates. It's going to change inflation. It will lead to higher inflation and much higher inflation volatility. So we've, we've come off of a couple decades where inflation volatility has been extremely low and stable. Um, that will start moving around a lot. That doesn't mean inflation just goes straight up. It could, but I, I think it's more likely that we see a lot more inflation volatility. But it's, it's going to lead to some really wild moves in markets. We're starting to see that already. Um, it'll it'll lead to things that we haven't that will be very confusing to people in markets. An example of that will be that that uh, that I think is is really interesting is that gold hasn't participated in this whole move in inflation, and and yet look at what digital assets have done. They've gone you know they've gone bananas, right? So uh, so a, a lot of things will will change in markets, but I think to to for, for me as a macro investor to to wrap my arms around something that I know I can't fully understand and anyone who ever claims to is is either a megalomaniac or just lying but what you can try to do is i think understand what are the biggest most important things that are happening and then kind of 
understand how they interact, and then stay mentally flexible around, well, what are some of the things that those could mean? And then, then you're supposed to kind of look at markets and say, well, what are markets telling you some of this stuff means? And, that, you know, and then ideally invest alongside those trends as they emerge. Yeah, it's super interesting to me. So, like some of the stuff you said, uh, you know, reflects other macro thinkers. Like Ray Dalio mm -hmm. comes to mind, for instance. And it's so interesting when I read Ray Dalio, he's like, he gets um, the diagnosis right, but then the cure, he says, he's like, go buy this, you know, shiny metal object. I know it's more complicated than that, but like, he's a big advocate of gold and not yet digital assets, which is somewhat interesting, right? In this kind of scenario, and mm -hmm. so it appears to me you're not just betting on this monetary regime change, that's not the only quantum change that you see. You see that, but then you also see this whole advancing technology. And I think in your quantum change letter, you, you called this like almost betting on decentralization and decentralized power. And you make the point that some will try to subvert this, like and co-opt this, mm -hmm. so maybe, maybe China. Mm -hmm. But you, you make the other point that for others that kind of embrace it and open their arms to this, and maybe the West is an example of that, that story is yet to be written, we'll see, I hope so. But for others, you said such a path holds the potential to produce another renaissance. Mm -hmm. Another renaissance is what you see. Mm -hmm. So talk about that in a little more detail. So what is it about this decentralized technology that comes into play in blockchain and crypto that could bring about this second renaissance? And you know, how does an investor position themselves to capitalize on that? Yeah, um, that sounds like a like a a big bold statement. I, I but I I entirely I don't think it's an exaggeration at all. I think that the the power of these technologies ha hold the potential to lead to dystopia or renaissance. And I think. When you look at what China is doing, I think what look they're the first ones to develop the the CBDC. Um, really, I mean there are a couple other countries that took it a bit more seriously early on, like Switzerland and Canada, and um, but you know the U.S. has been late, right? But the if you ask yourself why did China do that it's because they looked at that technology and said oh my god this is seriously powerful stuff right and so if we could take this and we could we could impose this on our on our subjects which is i think how they they um, think about it uh, then we get to see every single transaction throughout the economy i it, i mean it it extends the arm of their control over their population in ways that are that would have been unimaginable even a, a decade ago. And so they saw it. And so you kind of get, you know, they've showed their hand in, in terms of how they've chosen to implement it. And I'm not saying just because a central bank in, uh, issues a central bank digital currency that that they're they're doing it because they want to dominate their citizenry. There are other reasons for there are other efficiency reasons for doing it. It's just my the point that I'm making with China is that I think that the reason that the the, the dominant reason that they're doing it is be, because it gives them un, unparalleled uh, insight and control over their citizenry. And I think to the extent that they can export that, I think they'll fail at this. By the way, but to the extent that they can export that globally. I think they think it gives them the ability to maybe unseat the U.S. dollar as the the global reserve currency. So that's kind of the 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 kind of the dark path of these technologies is that in a world that becomes increasingly digitalized and our lives that become increasingly digitalized, that 
these technologies give the state a lot more power potentially. The, the path toward renaissance is, I think, consistent with, uh, with the development of Bitcoin and, and that technology, which is that, look, there's a way, there's a way using the technologies that we now have and the, the system, the cloud that connects 7.9 billion people on the planet, um, if you take firewalls and everything out, there's a system that allows people for the first time in human history to connect with one another, trust one another, even if they don't like one another, they speak different language, they're, they're, there's a way to, to have trust between people that is completely decentralized. And if you think, I think that that is the most important thing to think about when you consider an investment thesis for the long haul, forget about trading opportunities. We have, I think it's hard to understate how important that is because if you, if you just go for, a, go for a half an hour walk or an hour walk and think about everything that's touched your life, whether it's a company that you've shopped at or worked at or a church or a synagogue or any kind of religion that you've been part of or the government system that controls your town, your country, the you know international networks of the UN or IMF. There literally is, I would challenge you to think of anything that isn't material in your life that has that, you know, even your family structure, like there's nothing that isn't centralized in some way in terms of kind of control and power and it, it, it's like the sky is blue and that's just the way the world works, right? But what just happened is for the first time in human history at scale, something just popped up that said, actually, it doesn't have to work that way. Really, it just doesn't have to work that way. Now, it, it's natural that that realization is going to take decades to manifest fully. But, and you guys talk to a lot more of these people than I do, and you guys probably are these people, but you probably look at it. Well, I know you are because I, I, I listened to your piece on, um, uh, on uh, uh, ETH and the metaverse. Like we are, we are moving to a world which, is, which is, will become more or less fully digitalized. And I don't know, like what's the, what's the place for the traditional nation state in that world? The, the answer is I have no idea. All I'm saying is that these technologies for the first time in a real way, open up the possibility that we can ask that question and deliver a solution, okay? So that's like big, big picture. Where we are in 50 years, I think we'll look back at this and we'll say, we'll say that this was as important as the invention of a computer, um, maybe more in terms of how society is structured and operates. But in, in the more immediate term, it, it, th that kind of, recognition that this is that important and and its implementation in society and kind of how does like I'm I'm more focused on how it takes over Wall Street and the financial system and I want to play a part in that and we're building out a firm to take a very to have a very positive impact on leading to much more efficient financial system inclusive op opportunities for people all those good things right but there what these technologies do is they connect people and they take they slash the middlemen out. So when you talk about or when I talk about a renaissance, it, it's like what did the renaissance do? Okay, the, and and someone who's a who teaches a PhD program at Harvard would probably argue with me about this, and that's fine. But the renaissance, you know, the, we had just had the dark ages, 
and you you built up this kind of culture where where wealthy patrons would give promising artists money to kind of do whatever the hell they wanted to do. And some of them wrote books and some of them um, painted beautiful pictures, etc. And some of them thought about all kinds of new scientific innovations. And that was incredible because you just started funding people, right? We now have systems that have taken out the art dealer, they've taken out the, the music company, they've, they've connected literally 7.9 billion people around the planet, have the potential, no matter what country they're in, to do something and connect to capital and get funded, to do something that they're most passionate about and their aptitude is highest to do without having to get a work permit and do this and do that. I don't know what that leads to, but I'll tell you, if it doesn't get regulated away, I, I think you would be short kind of human innovation, short the, almost the human condition. You would be, sh you would be short to, sh to bet against that. I think is it's a terrible bet to make, um, but I don't know exactly what that will lead to. I think we're seeing glimpses of it in the NFT market, but that's like literally just scratching the surface. Oh my god, I can't, like, we couldn't agree more with that. Obviously, it's like, do you want to be on the other side? Do you want to short <laughs> yeah, right. the Renaissance? Do you want to short human ingenuity? Like bad move, especially when we're moving to the digital era. By the way. Um, have you listened to our podcast? This is with a, a PhD professor, uh, Josh Rosenthal. It's called um, the Crypto Renaissance. Okay, no, um, I haven't. One of our favorite podcasts. Really? We're gonna awesome. we gotta awesome. send it to all right, you all right, after the all show. Right. It's like I can't wait. Choice. Anyway, yeah. you'll all love right. it. Right. But let's move on. I think David's got another question. Yeah, so, I mean, as Ryan said, we are completely in line with this whole Renaissance future that we think crypto brings, and in this future that we think inevitably comes, and we encourage all bankless listeners to undergo this revolution than have this revolution happen to you. But there's a lot there's a lot of people in this world where they are not going to undergo this revolution. And in fact, change really, really scares them. Mm -hmm. And on theme with, I think, uh, a lot of other things that we've seen in 2020 and 2021, the world just seems to be overall extremely polarized. The difference between the 1% and the 99% is huge. The difference between the left and the right is huge. The difference between CBDCs and true cryptocurrencies is massive. The difference between generations is also massive. So there's a lot of people out there that this whole uh, renaissance thing, which we think is extremely optimistic and bullish on humanity, actually causes a lot of the incumbencies of the world to miss out on this future. So Eric, can you talk about the obstacles that you see ahead of us for all these people of the world that really are not incentivized to see this renaissance occur? Yeah. the For starters, <clears throat> I, encourage, uh, I, I encourage everyone at our firm and I encourage our clients and I encourage you guys, and you probably do look at it this way, but I encourage you to think about the, the resistance as the opportunity, right? So if, so we just did a financing round recently and, uh, and the investors in it included Coinbase, Goldman Sachs, Liberty Mutual Insurance. So kind of like we do with the, all of our business, we're looking to bring the smartest, best people and thoughtful firms together to help help us hopefully lead this institutionalization of, of these assets. And, and so it's natural that we're going to get some of the, the, the kind of ones who have put a lot of work into this space, but they may not be ready to fully embrace it because of regulations or whatever. They, you know, they, they may prefer to do it uh, with a thoughtful partner that they trust. Um, but 
if they could all do it right now, where they're all comfortable doing it right now, the three of us, I mean, I love you guys, but you probably wouldn't want to talk to me because I wouldn't be involved. I, I would have no no business position in this space, right? Because because the big incumbents would have would have capitalized on that opportunity. Coinbase wouldn't exist if the legacy financial institutions were willing to take the risk that that those guys took, and it wasn't even that long ago. And look at the value that that they've created. I, I, you know, their market caps are sixty five billion dollars right now, right? And um, and I think it's going to go much. You know, my guess is it's my, my guess is they're just beginning uh, because and they have such a head start over the legacy group. So I wouldn't get hung up with how are the legacy firms going to. You know, why aren't they joining or why aren't it's not joining? Why, why aren't they embracing opportunities in this space? In some cases, they can't because the regulatory environment doesn't really allow them to. In other cases, maybe they could, but the risk reward just isn't high enough relative to what their perceived opportunity is. And I think they just misjudge that. Um, but it doesn't matter because we actually we really are a better country and a better economy to just have creative destruction uh, define the future because it's inevitable that the legacy players that have structured the tax policy, they've structured via their lobbyists, you know, certain regulatory moats around their businesses and protections. It's natural that they don't really want having invested so much in that. There, there are very few people who are willing to just kind of tear down what they've built to because there's a new opportunity. So this whole process is just a very natural process. I think it's I think it's phenomenal. It's exciting. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I wouldn't like there's no lost sleep over why aren't these guys uh, getting involved? I think what happens is the, the companies not getting involved will lead to much more innovative people. Look, I, I'm 55 years old. I mean, you guys are I don't know. You're a lot younger than I am. And you, you guys are prob- you're probably talking to people who are younger than you are. And there, there's something so powerful for society to have really young people who aren't as jaded as guys like me you know, um, and have you know great fresh ideas be the ones to deploy capital and they're going to waste a lot of it and that's fine there's there's an abundance of capital in the world right now and there're not enough good ideas and not enough people who can execute and so all these changes are going to happen and then then the other thing is that there're all these older investors who are scared of these assets and that's why that's probably why gold is not going anywhere cuz all the old people own it and the young people are going, why would you ever want to own gold? Why, why, if we're moving to a digital world, why wouldn't you, you know, why wouldn't you own a, a, a native digital asset that like, it just doesn't make any sense why you would own gold? And, and so there'll be a lot of confusing things that happen in this world. And you know, that, that's what's unfolding now that I see. You know, one of these dividing areas that you mentioned in one of your uh, recent, I think, weekly letters is um, the young versus the old, mm-hmm. the generational stresses. In fact, you, you called this one of the many lines that divide our fractured world. You called this the darkest mm-hmm. is the separation of, of young versus old. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about that from a macro perspective, because I know you, you look at the macro and these kind of generational changes. Um, do you feel like the current system that we have favors, let's say, the older generations, let's say, baby boomers at the expense of the young? And what does that mean? And is crypto kind of a um, a result of some of that like pushback and some restoration of the balance? Can you talk about that? Yeah. So there are a lot of lines that divide society. There's, there's rich, poor, 
big ones are rich versus poor, young versus old, educated versus non-educated, and they're intersections of, of some of those lines too. Um, but if you think about what, what, uh, yeah, you, and you guys have done a lot of work on you know, what is a nation state? What does it even mean? And but if you think about, if you think about at the macro level, like what do different economic philosophies try to do, and what they they try to whether that's free market capitalism, whether it's socialism, whether it's communism, and th there'll be others. Like China is attempting something. It's kind of a hybrid, I think. But if you look at what what do they try to do, they try to create the greatest possible in in its in their purest sense. They try to create the greatest possible prosperity society wide, and then they try to figure out how to distribute the spoils of that economic output in a way that is sufficiently fair to create the incentive structures to, to kind of prevent an upheaval and create the incentive structures that that propel the system forward. And and so that's if that's in their purest sense what they're trying to do. And they, they each have different answers for that, right? And there were plenty of people that thought communism would would do a better job than free market capitalism. And, and I think that they were kind of wrong. Um, but we we probably and we probably have become overly confident about the ability of free market capitalism to just be the winning solution. There's probably some balance, like anything. Anyhow, um, if you if you think about what societies are supposed to do, they're, they're trying to find those optimal points. But but then when you go into practice, there obviously are all. Th then we have a lot of humans who you know some of whom are greedy and some of whom are scared and some of whom are you know have different drivers that motivate them and and so you end up with with flawed versions of those systems and oftentimes they they trend towards a lot of uh, um, corruption right without good check and balance and so I think in in the case of the US um, we quite clearly have a system where there there's a lot of inequality between rich and poor and it's not that any individual has necessarily been corrupt, but when you have a lot of wealthy people that are protecting their interests and they think that they're protecting their industry and they you know, have their lobbyists and they do all these things, in, in aggregate, it just unless you kind of rebalance that system, money tends to just go to the, the winners and, and unless you rebalance it. And then I think what happened with the, the old versus young in this is you know, we had the greatest, and by the way, I it's unfair. My parents are baby boomers. It's like, I feel bad. We love baby boomers. This. I know. Okay. I hear you. Okay. I hear you. I, like, the individuals. Let's just say, I, we I, love I, individual baby boomers. Our parents are baby boomers. But as a group. As a group. As yeah. a group. Yeah. So, look, the, you know, their parents fought the war. They're the greatest generation. I think they came back and they had a certain set of values and then and they, they did whatever they did. And then their kids grew up and kind of embraced more uh, you know, they they learned how to protest through the Vietnam War. They, they you know, they like had a very different life experience. And but they really learned when they were young, they really learned how to advocate for things. They didn't, by the way, they weren't really a revolutionary youth. They didn't have the technology and the incumbents looked at them as a joke. I think they looked at them like, OK, great. These guys are out at concerts. They're smoking weed. They're protesting the war, but like they're not overthrowing <laughs> anything. Okay, they're just making a lot of noise, and we got to deal with it. Okay, so fast forward a few decades, they got tired of 
protesting that very stuff, and, but they were really good at organizing and protesting, and they started advocating for themselves, which is why if you, if you look at a macro level at kind of how much society spends on old people now rel relative to children and education, et cetera, and you kind of went back 30, 40 years, it's totally distorted, even if adjusting for different sizes of population. So the, old, the, the baby boomers advocated brilliantly for themselves and their you know, more or less lar relative largesse in retirement relative to the young people. And so, so now we have this rich poor divide. We've got the, the, the young old divide. And what's so, this is just another one of these paradigm shifts. What we have now actually, ironically, is we have the youth that is revolutionary and it's through blockchain technology. So unlike, unlike like go, go read a Time Magazine article from 1970s or you know, 60s or early 80s or something about, about these people. Like they, had no, they had no real power, okay? Mm -hmm. Now look at people, look at some of the multi-billionaire guys who are in their 20s and 30s right now who are saying, actually, yeah, the, you know, the protocol that I'm building could take down the entire financial system. They actually have the technology. They've got compute power, which is going parabolic. They've got the entire infrastructure. They have the programmability in a capital-like business to do this. And they have the intent, and they have the capital. And they have, like, all the young people are rightly saying, you know what, because the older people have kind of screwed us, because they own all the assets, we own nothing. I can't even believe we have the opportunity to go invest in this whole thing that's going to topple that whole you know, kind of uh, quasi-corrupt um, edifice that that was built to not favor our interests, but favor all these old people. Like, we're just not doing it. And so what's absolutely incredible to me is when you think about, you think about how systems, it's almost like, I've always looked at the world as, as a super organism in a way. And so we have this, this huge imbalance created between rich and poor, old and young, et cetera. And now all of a sudden this new technology, it almost like just magically appears that can provide the lever to rebalance that system. And so I think that is, I really think that that is what is being played out here. Now, China is obviously terrified of that, but I think what's so encouraging and incredible about the US, and we've just seen it recently, which to me is why these asset prices are going crazy now, is the US has said, you know what? You know, Gensler working with, because um, of course Gensler has, um, has uh, you know, he didn't do what he did with this Bitcoin ETF just in isolation. He's talking to Yellen and they've, you know, this is a whole government approach. And they're like, okay, you know what? We're not going to take the China approach. We're not going to stifle innovation. We're going to let the market decide. And I think the market is going to decide and it's going to be, this is rebel. Like now we have actual revolutionary conditions. I don't mean in a way that disrupts society and destroys it. I mean, it, it, like, like very positive disruption. This is the Renaissance theme again. But, you know, that, that's how I see it playing out. Eric, a quote that I recently heard you say uh, on a different podcast is that um, the Fed is making the bet that they can unburden the economy without losing people's faith in the currency. Mm -hmm. And this was regard to like uh, money printing, quantitative easing. Uh, we can print money because uh, we need we need to. And also they've made this bet in the past and it's actually worked out. It's worked out for a number of decades that they make the bet where they can print money and people won't lose faith in the currency. Yet now what's different about this, uh, these choices being made now is we have crypto. We have an alternative, a place to exit and a way to express our loss of faith 
in the system. And as we have this generational divide where the Federal Reserve's monetary policy kind of just from ex almost exclusively favors the older generations, we have this younger generational strife and frustration about a lack of inclusion and a lack of like viable investment opportunities in the legacy system. And then just like you said, almost at the perfect point in history, crypto shows up as this vehicle that's outside of the system that the older generations don't understand, that is literally a system built on the fact that you don't have to trust it. You don't need to deposit faith because it's uh, a trustless-based system. And it's something that is, is digitally native, right, for this, um, this younger generation to be able to comprehend way quicker than their parents. So my question to you is, does the mere existence of this opportunity make the bet that the Federal Reserve is making that people won't lose faith in the currency simply a bad bet? Uh, that <clears throat> the, the short answer is um, there's always a risk that people lose faith in fiat. And that has been a risk that's existed throughout the history of, of, of mankind. Uh, and even even gold-backed currencies, you know, they just it's like why why do people? There's always a risk that people abandoned faith in gold. Right? There's no necessary reason that people had faith in gold, but that didn't, you know, it's faith all the way down. <laughs> yeah, like that didn't happen, right? But that more or less didn't happen. I think it might be it might happen, by the way, um, that people abandon faith in gold, and it kind of you're kind of seeing a bit of that right now. It doesn't mean it goes to zero. It just means that it might be really uninteresting for a long period of time, even in a world of expanding amounts of fiat. Um, but uh, look, there's there's that risk to the dollar. You know, I, earlier in my career, I um, I don't know. Early in my career, I, I was probably more apt to just look at the dollar as something that people could just lose faith in and abandon. And then the but kind of the more you learn about how the world operates and how how the world looks and how you know, how systems work and what the alternatives are, there really aren't very good alternatives. Now, the, the, the kind of Bitcoin maximalist would say, no, dude, you don't get it. Because what happens is everyone just gets out of the dollar and, they, and everyone gets into Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes to, you know, $10 million of Bitcoin or, or, or 100, like whatever, whatever the number is, like come up with a number, right? Um, because in that, in that case, it's not really about Bitcoin. It's about well, how many dollars have you created, um, and and so and if you create enough dollars, then Bitcoin could go to any number of dollars, but dollars aren't worth as much. All of those things could happen, but I think what I think what's happening that is this is the fifty five year old in me as opposed to the twenty five year old. What's happening is that the government the government wisely uh, looked at the situation and said, okay. We can't ever let that happen. And so what do you do if you, if you decide that you can't let that happen? What do you do? You go, okay, um, we get to tax Bitcoin. And once, once the government goes, all right, if this thing, this thing is either going to be here to stay or we're going to shut it down, okay? If you decide to shut it down, there are huge risks because you actually can't shut it down. All you can do is make it illegal. All right. If you make it illegal, it might be the case that that was a really bad decision for your entire economy because let's say that that technology represented some new innovation 
and the U.S. shut it down, but Europe didn't shut it down, or U.S. made it illegal, rather. Europe didn't. And then all the European financial companies went on to just do all of these great innovative things, and the U.S. was left behind. And then the U.S. has to turn around three years later and go, that was a really dumb decision. Governments hate making dumb or hate having to admit they made dumb decisions. So you don't want to do that, okay? What you want to do is you want to say, okay, let's just imagine that it's here to stay. All right, how do we wrest control from it in a way where we don't lose control of seniorage and the dollar? Because that would be a very bad thing for the U.S. And so the answer actually is really simple, and we're seeing it play out in real time. The first thing you do is you say, we want to understand who owns what. And once you understand who owns what, then you go, okay, now that we know what you have, we actually know what your capital gain is on that asset that you own, and we can choose to tax it at whatever we want. No one who invests in crypto right now would want to hear this, but I'll just make the, I'll just make, not because of any insight, but if the government at some point in the future said, you know, we're going to tax digital assets at 80% capital gains, they can do that because governments can do whatever they want to do. Okay, so the 25-year-old in me would have said, yeah, but the government, you know, then, then everyone will start breaking the law and people won't tell the government what they have. I don't think that will happen. The government has done a very smart thing in, in that they've pursued a regulatory path that before long will allow them to know where certainly where every American, but probably more or less everyone in the world, they'll probably more or less um, figure out who owns what. And then if they do debase the, the dollar and the dollar does collapse, well, guess what? Politicians have this huge pool of capital gain that they can tax. And so that that's where we are. I think that that's, that's a healthy balance. So so where that leaves us, it leaves us with a, with a digital asset ecosystem that provides a sanity check on government policy, which I think is super healthy for a dynamic political system. In other words, if the government becomes reckless in terms of its monetary and fiscal policy, you're going to see it with digital asset prices appreciating significantly. And people go, wait a second, what are you doing with my money? And that will help create... I think, more sensible policy. But if at the end of the day, the government really messes up and the dollar were to fall a long way and digital assets went crazy, they're just going to claw back a bunch of that through through taxation. This is an incredibly reasonable take, and I'm glad you articulated it this way because I don't think I've heard it explained this way. But it's like, I think what you're saying, Eric, is like, the horse has already left the barn, right? You know, there's all these you know, thoughts in the early days that the government will never lose its seniorage, so it'll never let Bitcoin be a thing. It'll shut it down. Well, it hasn't. Horse has already left the barn. It's not even going to pursue that policy, at least the U.S. government has. Now that China's gone and pursued it, by the way, makes the U.S. even less likely, probably, to pursue that policy because they get all the miners in the U.S., they get a competitive advantage, but they still have the... I guess, lever of taxation. So they can always still tax their citizens. Then, you know, you get a capital gain on crypto, you know, 10x. Cool. The government gets a piece of that. So thank you very much. Right. Um, that, that's what you're saying. And so yep. there's really no big threat from your perspective of, you know, regulators or the big bad U.S. government coming and squashing the entire industry. Do you think that threat is, uh, is overplayed? Uh, they're not going to do that. Is that the case? Yeah. Well, I think that I think what just happened is that they decided to not do that for Bitcoin. And and I think that extends to ETH. I think for the regulatory 
uh, wrestling match is going to be years in the making. And every incumbent industry that's threatened by these technologies, trust me, is going to be rolling out their, their uh, you know, lobbyists to try to make sure that their business isn't, you know, isn't completely destroyed by these technologies. So it's not that they're, the, the regulatory issues are not fully settled. But what I think what we just saw the government do, and remember, this is a Biden this is a Biden SEC chair. It's not you know, like the, no one. It's not like Biden can throw Gensler under the bus and say he he was a rogue agent. This was a this was a. I don't have, I don't have in, I don't have specific inside information. I'm just looking at this as a as a macro investor who pays attention. Given the level of scrutiny around a Bitcoin ETF, the fact that they just approved one tells you that the government in a holistic way, just said, we might not love the, we might not love Bitcoin. We might, might not like it. We might even hate it, but we are not at the point where we think the US government and our financial system and our political system should be in the business of regulating interesting new technologies out of existence. We are not in that business and we're going to let the market figure it out. And that doesn't mean we're never going to hear from them again. It just means that it means that that's what they said. And that's a really, really big thing. So I think people underestimate how important that is. I think it's just, it's seismic. Um, now, by the way, I expected that as the end game. So I'm not sitting here going, oh my God, I thought that was going to happen and now it's not. <laughs> but it's one thing to have a strong view and an informed view that this is what would happen. And it's another thing for that event to, to play out. That event has just played out. I think that's super interesting. So the implications of that are basically the government is saying, you're saying this is much more coordinated than what we see of like, you know, the SEC saying, okay, Bitcoin ETF. You're, you're saying, look, the entire administration, everybody in the government power were kind of in on it, right? It's, it's Treasury talking to SEC, talking to FinCEN, and they're all saying, okay, you can have your Bitcoin people. Here it is. And so now maybe they'll have a different perspective on like privacy chains. Of course. Right. So Absolutely. like a cryptocurrency, like because taxation is a concern. Or maybe they'll have a different perspective on something like USDC or a Tether or stablecoin, right? Because, you know, that gets into some other areas. But when we're talking about these, the biggest crypto assets, the ones that matter, the ones that are the base layer for everything else, the Bitcoins and uh, Ethers of the world, right? That's gone. That horse has left the barn. Now, maybe they'll invest in like blockchain analytics companies, right? In, in fact, there's all of these contracts with the IRS and blockchain analytics so that they can trace and see, you know, how much assets their citizens actually hold. But that's on the kind of the taxation path. Um, yeah, I think all of that is a really interesting take, Eric, and feels like an informed observer because so often in crypto, um, we get regulatory FUD probably every two weeks, okay? Yep. And there's like headlines in our crypto media saying, so-and-so evil, you know, government official is going to like kill crypto. And like when you zoom out and you take this position on it, like this is just temporary noise and FUD. And we don't, really don't have to worry about that in the short run. 
Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. And now it's live and has over 100 projects deployed. Gas fees on Ethereum L1 suck. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. And that's why teams like Arbitrum have been hard at work developing layer two solutions that makes transactions on Ethereum cheap and instant. Arbitrum increases Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what we are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and overall make a better user experience, go to developers.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. And if you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps being built on Arbitrum. Many DeFi applications on the Ethereum L1 are migrating over to layer twos like Arbitrum, and some are even skipping over the layer ones entirely and deploying directly on layer two. There's so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so go to bridge.arbitrum.io now and start bridging over your ETH or any of the tokens listed and start having the DeFi or NFT experience that you've always wanted. Living a bankless life requires taking control over your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is much more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger Live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite DeFi apps all in one spot, Ledger Live is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy your crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into all of the DeFi apps and services that you're used to. Using Ledger Live, you can stake your ETH in Lido, swap on DEXs like Paraswap, or display your NFTs with Rainbow. You can also use Wallet Connect inside of Ledger Live to connect to all the other DeFi apps that keep coming online. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all of the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab a Ledger, download Ledger Live, and get all of your DeFi apps all in one space. I want to ask you another question before, just to tie off this thread on kind of like the generational divide and young versus old, because you made this point in your weekly that I really loved, and you talked about this, and I think this will speak to a lot of our listeners, the advantage of being young and broke, okay? I might say young, dumb, and broke, okay? Because that's, you know, it's a popular song, (laughs) I guess. Um, But like, what are the advantages of being young dumb and broke do you think right versus um the establishment cats because like i mean young people maybe they don't know a lot about finance they don't have these preconceived notions they also like don't have a lot of power and they don't have a lot of money and you actually couch these things as an advantage why is that an advantage in your mind for starters i don't I don't think I don't think it's ever good to be dumb. Um, just because, to be clear, um, but I think if you use if you use dumb if you use dumb as a um, no preconceived notions, let's say of how the world works. Yeah, yeah, because you know the best early trade in my career actually was uh, was when I was in London as a prop trader working with uh, hold was I that would have been I would have been. 28. Um, so I, I was, I was young, I was dumb and I was dumb on a lot of dimensions actually, but I, uh, and I, I wasn't entirely broke, but I mean, more or less, uh, but I, I was, I was, 
I had the advantage when I was trading against um, a lot of older guys uh, when it came to this thing called the ERM, which was the exchange rate mechanism, which was it was a mechanism that that was an agreement between European countries to keep their currencies toggled to one another through this exchange rate mechanism in very narrow ranges. And I saw all kinds of imbalances that were being built up. And I mean, I honestly, I didn't really know what I was talking about, but I, I was an econ major and I did read. And I remember I went up to, uh, to our chief economist. I had lunch with him and he served all this sushi. And I, I was like, wow, that's how these guys, this is how they roll. Um, and, and I walked him through It'll, the, inst- the unsustainability of Italy's finances. And I said, I'm just looking at this. And like, to me, these guys are going to go broke in six months. And, I'm, and he used to work at the IMF. I'm expecting him to say, oh, that's not, you know, that's not possible. And he's like, actually, it's a fair point. And so I ran down onto the desk and I just started, I started putting all these trades on. And the old guys, none of them could conceive that this rate mechanism could ever break because you had central banks on both sides of it. <laughs> and it was very, it was one of the, it was like one of these systems that just converged everything into these tight ranges. And as it did, it, it created all the, all the older guys who just saw the invincibility of it would make bigger and bigger bets for narrower and narrower spreads and, uh, or small and smaller profits effectively. And it created a highly explosive situation if the underlying economies fell out of balance, right? And so I was just dumb enough to, to actually be able to, to see that that was a real possibility. And so, and I was young and I had, I really had nothing to lose. Um, and so, you know, I had my job to lose and at the time, I just, I don't want to say I didn't care. I just, but I, I, I cared less about, say, when I walk into work every day right now, I care about all of my clients. Uh, I'm their fiduciary. I care about everyone who works here. I care about my family. Like, there's so many other considerations. I'm thinking about what's in the best interest of the U.S. When I was 20 years old, trust me, I didn't think about anything. So, <laughs> so now, the thing is, a healthy society needs a lot of guys like me right now at 55. But it also, if you're going to have a vibrant economic system, particularly when technology is enabling the potential for so much um, innovation. And what does innovation mean? Innovation leads to higher productivity work, which everyone in society should want to be able, in, in a sense, to work jobs that are less strenuous and maybe for less amount of time and yet have all the creature comforts and food and every shelter that they want. So all these things are amazing for society, but you kind of need to have you know, the 28-year-old young, dumb and broke guy who just walks in and says, well, this is stupid. I can't believe you guys don't see that it's so stupid. Let me actually do something about it, right? And I'm not, I'm not going to say that, like, I wasn't the only one who participated in breaking that system. And it wasn't even that I broke it. It was a system that was on its last legs. And so George Soros, um, you know, became very famous for for making a billion dollars when that system broke in a day. And he wasn't 28 years old. He was older. But like it, it takes an ecosystem of of people who, you know, who have who can afford to make mistakes and not have it destroy the rest of their lives. Like to me, when I think about mistakes that I could make at at our firm right now and trust me, 
we're willing to take a lot of risk, right? We've talked about some of the risks that we've taken. It's not that we're not risk takers. It's just that it's just a little bit more measured and thoughtful about how we approach things, right? But you, you need to have that whole kind of, you need to have that whole ecosystem if you're going to have a really vibrant economy. And so I think that if I made huge mistakes running this firm right now, would, would society give me the chance to start another firm like this? It probably wouldn't realistically, right? When I'm 28, I didn't even think about that. So you need, you know, you need those, those characteristics. Now, the last thing I will say about that is that in relation to the piece that I wrote, what makes that interesting for markets right now is because you have real, one of the big tensions in society is that you have the baby boomers that we've already talked about how they, in many respects, have, have rigged the system or you know, nudged the system to favor their interests. By the way, they're the ones that own all the assets. And even amongst baby boomers, there's still wealth inequality, right? But they're the ones that own all the assets. And the younger people own nothing. And, and this isn't just a normal state of affairs. This is historically, we're talking about huge dispersion between these groups relative to what a healthy society or, or relative to long-term averages in this country. So what, what happens is the old people, what they want, they just want to stay rich. And so they are tending to not want to take risks with that money. And so they're owning bonds. But the young people are saying, you know what? We are done with you guys. We do want universal basic income. You guys screwed up the planet. We want green energy. We want to remake everything. And I know, it, I know that it's Biden leading that, and he's a million years old. But it's the young people in his party that are kind of pushing those policies. So the youth is fighting against the old people. So the old people own all these bonds, and now inflation is going up, and they're, they're becoming less wealthy. This is a disaster. So if you're old, you're going, I want to own bonds because it's going to pay me my coupon, and I can stay wealthy. What, you, what you're terrified of is when someone goes, actually, no, if you own bonds, you're going to start becoming less wealthy year by year because inflation is going to eat away. So you're going to have to go take risk, okay? You got to take risk. So what does that mean? If you take risk, it means that you might buy something and it might fall 50% in value. So you don't want to do that. And that's, that is this dynamic that's happening in markets right now that is, it's going to create a lot of opportunity, by the way. But when you look at what's happening in the digital asset markets, the young people are saying, I'm not even playing your game. If, if you bought all that gold after 08, old guy, because you were worried about inflation, because you were expecting me to work my, my butt out, off for the next 10 or 15 years so that I would pay an even higher price for your gold, guess what? I'm not doing it. I'm buying Bitcoin. So you can own your gold and you can figure out who you're going to sell it to. You want to sell it to some people in India getting married? Good luck. Or some Chinese, like, Good luck, but I'm not buying that. And so that we're seeing some of those tensions in in markets right now, and and, and how those. I mean, it's it, it's it really is. This is a terrible, terrible market environment for older people for that reason. And the young people are like, look, even if I buy a bunch of crypto, and or I I invest in this project or I build this company and it fails, like I'm 28. Who cares? I'll you know what I mean? Like they're they're literally not even thinking about it. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Eric, I feel like you're nailing it completely, right? So you made this uh, you know, statement in your post there. As elderly gold owners writhe in portfolio pain, confused why the price of yellow metal is falling with inflation rising, our young people look to the digital future buying Bitcoin, Ether, Solana, yeah. NFTs. That's exactly what's happening. And just to put some color on that, because I didn't uh, actually know this, you were talking about like how much pain 
between the older demographic is with with bonds, basically, when they're you know not in full risk assets, when they're not in stock. So U.S. inflation over the past year was 5.4 percent, mm-hmm. you said. So older people who own the risk-free 10-year treasury notes to secure their retirement, they lost 11.1%, 11.2% here actually. They're losing money, right, by not investing in crypto essentially, or at least having a portfolio with these risk on assets like stocks. That is some of the generational pain that we're talking about here. And I guess the opportunity from being young, dumb, and broke. The other thing I'll say is like, there's fractals of this also, Eric, that play out even in crypto. And one of these things uh, David and I have been exploring is like this whole more recent trend. When I say recent, it's like three to six months of new DeFi 2.0 protocols, right? And these DeFi 2.0 protocols, right? Some people are calling it Zoomerfy because the kids who are building it are like, teenagers they're 18 they're 19 they're 20 okay and the old and they weren't around to buy bitcoin or (laughs) ether when it was cheap right and so they are they are the new fractal of the new like people that need to take risk yeah it's so like the older DeFi people like you know maybe not so much david and i because we're trying to understand all the perspectives here but like (laughs) we are kind of the baby boomers of decentralized finance because there's this new cohort that's coming to the space and they're questioning everything and they're like Mm -hmm. Yeah, we like what you guys built, and that's all great, and it's less risky, and it's all safe. But like, we're doing this other thing over here, right? And so it's very funny yeah. how these uh, <laughs> these things play out in fractals, and they just keep repeating. Uh, you know, we don't have too much time left, uh, Eric. This has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about these things. I just want to tie a few more things off because um, I think throughout this conversation, you've really made the case for digital assets, in particular, like Bitcoin and ETH. And I want to get into maybe the entire thesis of your firm on this, on both Bitcoin and ETH. And like, I guess maybe uh, come to a conclusion on it. Um, so much of what we've been talking about with the monetary policy change, the you know technological change that crypto and Bitcoin brings is sort of a, a new way to think about money. And you wrote this in your case for digital assets. Um, money is an illusion, perhaps the greatest, the world's greatest mass delusion. You say, money is not real. It never has been. It never will be. It is our collective faith in the meaning of money that gives it value. I want to talk about that because that is a, it's not contrarian in crypto circles, right? But it's still got to be institutional contrarian, right? Like not a lot of people have given much thought into what money actually is, so tell us, how did you come to this conclusion? What's been your thought process? This idea that money is an illusion, uh, mass, mass, the great, the world's greatest mass delusion, and what the nature of money actually is. Uh, money. I've look, I've studied money my my whole career. I've studied market history. I've studied manias, um, and I you know one of the great things that trading does that is a little unique amongst professions is it just, man, it just forces you to just have to confront your mistakes and your errors uh, or you die. And there are a lot of other industries where people can probably persist with, with making mistakes for, you know, perhaps way too long. Um, and it's all, you know, so over, over that, that period of time, I think I've just I've had to confront the, this fact that central banks can just kind of keep doing what they're doing and it kind of works and um, and there are no rule there's no 
like there's no notion of what's fair, unfair in markets. And you kind of, you just, you get forced to have to look at, you have to, you get, you, you're forced to look at all these different issues like markets and manias and money and, you know, what what do they all mean? How do they all fit together? You're just kind of forced to just keep hammering your head against the wall and just looking at it from all different angles. And what what you ultimately conclude, and it really is a conclusion, which is why I wrote it, is I mean, money, there there is no such thing as money. There is a there is this notion that we have of what money means. And it's a little bit like the sky is blue. We just, you know, it's a, it goes back to some stuff we were talking about earlier where, you know, we assume that the world functions based on centralized power and we assume that money, money means something. And it's so, it's so central to just what we think about throughout our lives because we use it all the time that we, it, we kind of can't possibly fathom that it isn't real. And that gives the government enormous power over us because they can then play with something and that we misunderstand. And if you start on, you know, if you look at, if you look at what governments do with fiat through that lens, a lot of things start making sense that might not have made sense in markets if you didn't see it through that lens. So that's kind of how, maybe that was a little obtuse, but that that's kind of how you end up getting there. And you and you you come to see it's like, obviously money, money's useful. You have to pay taxes with your money. So there's you know, there's certain things that the government can, the government forces you to have to make money because you have to pay taxes in it, right? Um, so, the th- you know, there, there are reasons that you have to have it and the reasons you have to work for it. But in terms of what it really means, it doesn't, like, w- how could something mean a whole lot if the government could just create $7 trillion of, of new money? <laughs> I mean, wh- like, what does it mean, right? Um, and then, and that's what's so interesting about the case for digital assets, because I tell you, We've talked a lot about the technology today, but we haven't really talked about just owning assets. Like, how do you how do you invest now, right? How do you what do you do if you believe in some version of the of what we've all talked about today? So then, what do you do with that, right? You can you can go out and you can create a company and build a new protocol, and you could do that. You could you could build an asset management company. I'm doing that. Um, you could build infrastructure in this, you know, or you could you could build a chain analysis kind of company. Like, there are a lot of things you could do. You could build, right? You can also just buy some of these assets. And so when you start looking at these assets, just take Bitcoin. It's just it's unlike anything that I have ever seen in my career. So it has no it has no tangible value, but it has limited supply. And what you what you come to see is like something that has no tangible value, but limited supply that's credible, it could become invaluable. And that doesn't really make sense in traditional investment world. People go, that makes no sense because if I buy a piece of dirt and I put a building on it, then it, you know, I have rents and da, 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 da. It's like, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's true. But when you look at most investments and then you look at something like Bitcoin, it's so utterly foreign. And why is it so foreign? It's like, because it actually has limited supply. So every other thing that I've ever invested in, other than, other than fine art, and I don't really own, I own art, but not fine art. I don't, like I don't own the Mona Lisa. There's only one Mona Lisa in the world, right? And, and so that could, that could be as valuable as people choose it to be, right? Because there's only one of them in the world. But 
there are a lot of dollars in the world and they could just make more of them. So, I, you know, like, what is that value really worth? But they're also, there are a lot of really nice apartments in New York City. And if the price goes up, they're going to make more of them. And there's a lot of farmland in the world. If the price goes up, they'll level another forest in the Amazon. And, you know, everything in the world has a supply demand and a supply, a supply function relative to price. Gold does. Everything does. Bitcoin, no matter what the price does, if it goes up or down, they're not like we know how much is going to be made. And, that, and so that creates that actually forces you to then if you think about Bitcoin in money terms, it forces you to kind of look at fiat for what it is. And it's like, well, that, that actually I mean, fiat is a real illusion. Bitcoin is an illusion. And Bitcoin forces you to have to rec- have to admit that it has no real value. But for like, it's pure. It's like, okay, well, this is what we're going to, we, we are assigning a value to it and it means nothing. Like the, there is no tangible value other than this network effect of what we agree on. And so it's a really cool thing in that way because we don't really ask those questions of dollars or euros or yen or, or RMB, even though those are all fictitious. But we were forced to ask those in digital. And I think older people are looking at that and they're going, I reject that. And younger people looking at it, and and I think they're saying, wait a second, you guys make money out of thin air. And we have this thing that we all kind of think is pretty incredible. And there is a limited supply of it. So maybe this is actually more real than that. Um, And so, so for younger people, anyway, I think that's the, that's the, the thesis for it. And then, and then more savvy, older people are coming around to that. And, and that, that, that's what will drive the value there, higher. It's this. The, that's the sorry. red pill, my friend. That's the red pill I was talking about. All right. All right. Just there, that entire thing. That's what yeah. I meant. <laughs> yeah. Eric, one thing I really appreciate about this conversation and how you think is everything is very pragmatic. Nothing is too crazy, too out there. And the, the crypto world definitely falls victim to people that think in too much of a crazy terms. And so I, I want to put one of my most pragmatic takes. As somebody who's known to be a little bit pie in the sky, I want to give you my, my most pragmatic take as to how this future comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a line that I like called, uh, that goes, um, society progresses one grave at a time, mm-hmm. which is a little bit dark. But mm-hmm. the, basically, it's more of just like, hey, like the future that we're envisioning, it'll come, especially when everyone that doesn't believe in it passes on and leaving behind everyone that does believe in it. Could you reflect on that perspective as to how this future actually arrives? Well, I don't disagree with what you just said. Uh, and it is it is grim, but it's true. But that's, I don't know. I mean, hopefully we all have good lives. And when, when we're, you know, we're, we're, when we're old, we'll, we'll just go, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. And, 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 um, and so, yeah, like, I think there's a certain progression to life. And it's great to see younger people. I have four kids. I, I just want to see them all do do so much better and more interesting things in their lives than than I do. And so and so when I see young people, you know, young, dumb and broke people like I was talking about my 28 year old self, I, I think it's amazing. And I think that their new ideas, even if I don't agree with all of them, they're going to lead to something better. So I I think that this, you know, kind of this new future that is coming, number one, I think it's inevitable. But I think that the sooner it comes, the better. I am. I think it's in the U.S. national interest to bring this forward and to be the leader in the world in this whole new, you know, digital innovation. Um, and 
And so I think it will come by, and hopefully we'll play our, our you know, small, humble part in, in educating and then working with government and regulators to you know, create a, a firm, stable, but always evolving infrastructure upon which all this innovation can be built. And I'll, I'll probably focus a lot more on what happens in the financial services area, but I think getting that foundation right, the thing is, Finance is so integral to the way society operates. Is if you can get, you can kind of get get the right foundation for the financial world, all sorts of other things will be built around it, on top of it, with greater endorsement by political systems and all the parts of government, and it'll be more widely adopted by a broader group of people. So I think, like, it will happen because the. It, it, it won't, it's not a total revolution where the old system just crumbles and the new system takes over. It's this. It's going to be this transition period, and I think it will. It makes sense to me that that there will be crossover players. Like we would, I would view us as a crossover player, right? We're not a huge firm. We're a multi-billion-dollar firm, but we're not. You know, we're not the big legacy financial institutions, and and we'll kind of help bring in large pools of capital to this space. To make all sorts of investments and bridge legacy players, I think a lot of the weaker ones will fail in the coming you know, 10 or 15 years. And so there'll be a lot of dead companies. But there'll be legacy companies that transition and become more efficient and better. Um, so I think, that will, I think that will happen. It's not some crazy revolution, but I think it will be a time of, of enormous change. And then if we get it right, I think we will have a renaissance that comes out of this. I think we're seeing the early signs of that already. But for me, it's a very optimistic path. That said, you know, any transition period seems really bumpy. And and for people who resist change, which is almost 100% of people, I mean, I probably do too, but I at least know that humans all resist change. So I kind of try to see that in myself and just say, okay, I got to blow through that because that's my job and I have to help. Yeah. And and so anyway, but I think when so much changes upon us, most people are going to really struggle with that, even if it's leading us to a much better place. And I think that that's what's going on. Well, Eric, through the course of this conversation, which has absolutely been a blast, I think you've served as the bridge from Greenwich. Thank you for teaching us <laughs> about that, teaching me. There you go, crypto. Nice. I got it right by the end yeah. of this podcast. And so we appreciate this. I want to end with this question because we love asking macro mm-hmm. guys about predictions. You guys are famous for your mm-hmm. you know, fantastic predictions. Give us a prediction in terms of where we're headed and you know, choose your own prediction. You want to do the price of ETH, Bitcoin, end of the year or in a couple of years? Do you think that we're going to have another cycle like a 2017 cycle and then things are going to bubble up and we'll have a blow off the top or do you think we'll be in a super cycle or just give us some prediction that uh, you feel you know reasonably strongly about making right now um i'm a longer term uh and by the way i've i haven't shied away from day trading over the course of my career but at this stage <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a i'm a, a longer term investor uh in, investor in, in macro um and i think that I have, yeah, I have competitive advantage in that space, so that's kind of what I stick to. Um, I think I'll, I'll leave you with two things. One is that I think the mark when it comes to Bitcoin, because I think your listeners are really interested in that. I think Bitcoin. People currently look at Bitcoin as digital gold, and I think that it's a it's helpful for people to have 
a mental model or a framework to think about anything brand new, because otherwise they're just lost. And I think it's, I think it's a reasonable mental model to have. And they say, well, Bitcoin goes to five hundred seventy-five thousand dollars; it'll be equal to gold. That just assumes that no one sells their gold, by the way. And you know, but anyway, um, I think that. I think that eventually Bitcoin will go is is will be way more valuable than gold, and that uh, and that as we approach that level, or maybe surpass whatever that gold crossover level is, people will begin to believe will begin to start seeing that it wasn't the right framework. But I think for the time being, it's it's fine because it's a it's a, a price that's way far away. But I think we'll end up seeing that that gold is an inert metal. It hasn't changed in. I don't know, in however many billions of years, and uh, and Bitcoin will evolve over the next couple of years. So, I, so I think that's that's one thing which makes me, you know, really positive on on this this whole space. The second thing that I that I will tell you is that I have studied financial manias over my career, and what I see from the macro inputs, from the technological change, and from to use David's term, the paradigm shift that we see. The inputs that I see are un are unlike things that I've seen historically. I think we could I think we could legitimately have the largest kind of speculative boom in human history, and I know that you know that plays out over the over the coming decade. And I think that a lot of it will be based on on technological developments that are incredibly valuable, and a lot of it will be garbage because um, that's just the nature of things. But I think it's I think we're in we're in a period like that. And so the important thing to consider when if you believe that you're in a period like that is that you need to you need to be very open minded about what prices and all, all sorts of things could do. And uh, and I think we're seeing signs of that, like in NFTs, you, you start seeing things that most people can't comprehend. And I think those those tend to be the things I pay most attention to because I think they're reflecting some underlying change in the way markets operate in the world and uh, maybe how humans operate and some of these tensions, maybe how they're playing out. But I so those are the those are the two things. I, I'm I'm very attuned to that. I think we I think we could be in the the you know early stages of of just yeah, remarkable moves. Um, there you go, folks. So that's great. Maybe no, that's, that's not great. specific. That's not ETH at certain amount by you know. Love it. Uh, that guys, uh, Eric Peters, Bitcoin bigger than gold, the largest speculative mania possibly in human history. Get prepared for that. You are prepared if you're listening to Bankless. Eric, uh, thanks so much for joining us. This has been an absolute blast. We've really appreciated your time. Awesome. You guys, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be on this. This is fun. All right. Action items for you, Bankless listeners. We referenced a few reading materials, some notes for you. Read Eric Peters' Weekend Notes. Uh, the one is called Young and Broke. You can read. We'll include a link in the show notes. Also, The World Belongs to Those Who Let Go, another fantastic weekend note read. You can also read The Case for Quantum Change and The Case for Digital Assets that Eric has published on the One River uh, website as well. Include links in the show notes. And if you have not already become a Bankless Premium member, this is your reminder to do that. Just $22 a month. What do we give for that? Uh, a market opportunity report every Monday, access to the Inner Circle Discord, where we can level up as a group. You get the podcast debrief. So right after this, David and I are getting on a show. We're doing a debrief of our discussion with Eric. You get access to that. Discounts, NFTs, and more. 
you could sign up for that in the show notes on the Bankless website as well. Newsletter.banklesshq.com slash subscribe will get you there. Risks and disclaimers, of course. Bitcoin is risky. ETH is risky. All of crypto is risky. So is the traditional world. You can't get away from risk, folks. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.